As I was uh, looking at what we were going to look at this morning, um, I was reminded that song of what a beautiful name it is, and it kind of almost went there, the name of Jesus. What is beautiful about the name of Jesus? Uh, how, do, how do we work it? But kind of going to go a little bit further. Uh, Jesus would have been uh, named on the eighth day, but we're going to take it a little bit further. But before I do, it is uh, New Year's, so Happy New Year. We are into that new year, 2018. I don't know if 2017 was good for you or bad for you, but uh, we've got a new year. Get that chance to kind of look ahead. Uh, in Isaiah 43, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Everybody say, new thing. New thing. God's doing a new thing. It is a new year. Now it springs up. Do, not, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. What is God doing? God's doing something new. Uh, every day is new, but we're into a new year, and God might be saying that he wants to do a new thing in your life. Perhaps you're kind of going, I don't know how in the world we're going to make it through this next month, this next week, this next year. And God might be saying, no, I see a way where no one else sees a way. I'm going to do a new thing in your life, if you will listen. We, uh, perhaps, some of us have made New Year's resolutions. Uh, they, uh, they say that New Year's resolutions, 40% of us will die out within, by the end of January. And by Valentine's Day, 70% of us will not have done anything with our New Year's resolution. And that could be. But I think sometimes it's because uh, we make these, we have these good intentions, but they're not really God intentions. So I'd like to challenge us this morning to go beyond good intentions and see if we can find a God intention for our life. God's going to do a new thing. So what is a new thing in our lives? We need to listen to the Holy Spirit, and I believe He will speak in a unique way to each one of us and show us that one thing that God wants us to do in this new year. Maybe something from you, or maybe He wants to do something in your life this year. So instead of just having a good intention uh, that is sometimes me-centered, we need to have a God intention that is God-centered. God is doing a new thing. We're continuing on in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We kind of started in, in December, had the great stories about uh, coming into the nativity scene and, and that whole part about Christmas, and now we're going we're gonna to carry on. Luke 2, verse 22, carries on this story that uh, probably Mary has told to Dr. Luke as he's recording and researching and trying to find out everything about Jesus. And Mary has these startling stories that just stuck in her mind. They were very unique. Uh, something special happened, and we want to kind of uh, delve into that a little bit. It's buried in Jewishness, in the, the days and lives and happening that any Jewish person would have understood, and even today would understand. Um, but to us, it's kind of a little bit different. They use some different words. So we're going to try to open that up for you and then kind of look at this new thing that God might have for us. 
Luke 2, verse 22, starts out and it says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. Well, in order to understand that, we actually have to look into the Old Testament. And uh, it, it kind of brings out that when a woman has been pregnant, gives birth to a son, she would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And on the eighth day, the boy would be circumcised and named. They'd have a great naming ceremony. These ceremonies are, are what we call rites of passage. And they're all uh, part of it. When, when you have a new baby born in your family, what happens? We kind of have a party. People want to get together and they want to see the baby. Um, when the first time they come to church, everybody gathers around. Big deal. That's a kind of a rite of passage. Now, some cultures have very specific times. Weddings, that's a rite of passage. Um, graduation from high school, rite of passage. Turning 16, getting your license, rite of passage. Turning 17, wrecking your dad's car, rite of passage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we all have to go through it. Um, there are these rites of passage. Well, in the, in the Jewish culture, eighth day, babies named, boy babies. Girls actually were two weeks, uh, whereas a week later, they were on the 16th day. Now, they also had part of the purification rites. When a woman gave birth, there was blood and everything, and, and uh, Jewish uh, culture is not afraid of it, but they see the blood as out of normal. And in worship, in sacred things, it, everything is normal. And if it's out of normal, then you're unclean. Uh, a woman uh, could not go into the temple or into the synagogue until 40 days had passed. And that was sort of the purification. And a special offering had to be made, both a purification offering and a sin offering. It was, it was part of the culture. Now, I'm sure Mary and Joseph were kind of like, oh boy, we get to go to do to the temple. We get to go and do this thing because it's all part of the rites of passage, new baby, all the kind of excitement that goes with that. This is what we're talking about 40 days later. Now, that takes us to, if you were putting it in our calendar today, if, if birth was the December 25th, which nothing's saying it was, but if it was, the early church counted off 40 days. That takes you to February 2nd. And it was known in the early church as Candlemas Day. And because we're going to talk about the light, that was when you came and you, everybody brought their candles to the church that they were going to use for the next year, and there was a blessing on the candles, blessing on the light, because Jesus was a light to the Gentiles. And February 2nd comes absolutely in the middle between winter in December 21st and spring, March 21st, 22nd. Right in the middle is February 2nd. And so people kind of began to s look at the uh, times, and they would kind of look as their farmer's almanac, and they go, you know, by Candlemas, we'll be able to know whether we're going to have a short winter, long winter. And in Europe, the saying went, if Candlemas Day be clear and fine, the rest of winter is left behind. If Candlemas Day be rough and grum, there's more of winter left to come. However, when it got over to North America and to Pennsylvania and the little groundhogs got ahead, uh, they, they turned it the other way around. We have no idea why. 
But th that's, that's kind of why February 2nd is Groundhog Day. Candlemas Day, because we don't use candles that much in our lives, it kind of disappeared. But Candlemas Day is this time when they took Jesus to the temple for the purification rites for Mary and for one other thing. Luke 2, verses 22 to 24 is as we begin this story. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem. They were in Bethlehem, about six kilometers south of Bethlehem. And so they walked up to Jerusalem to where the great temple was to present Jesus to God. As it is written in the law of Moses, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That comes from Exodus. So every firstborn male, whether it was an animal or whether it was a human, belongs to God. Now, if it was an animal, you would actually kill that animal. You would sacrifice it. It would be sacrificed to God. If it was the first fruits, the first 10% of your tree crop, it would belong to God. This was part of the tithe. But children, God had it very plainly. I do not require human sacrifice. The one time he did require human sacrifice, you remember Abraham. Abraham had his only son, Isaac. Very important to him. It was going to be his lineage. God said to Abraham, offer your son Isaac on the altar. Kill him. Now, don't you find it interesting? Abraham didn't question God. He kind of went and did it. Because in that culture, in that time of the ancient world, that was normal. Many people offered their children in sacrifice for prosperity, or if an enemy was coming, you would take your most precious possession and offer it to God in a sacrifice. Moloch was the god of fire, and parents would, would offer their children in the fire. They would burn their children in a hope of getting prosperity or saving the town or getting rain or all kinds of different things. So Abraham heard that, and he didn't even question God. He took his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and was going to offer him. But God did something unique. He came in and he said, no, don't do that. Here is a ram. Offer the ram instead. There was a substitute. There was something else offered instead. And never, ever, ever did he ask for the firstborn to be offered. However, the firstborn belonged to God, and the firstborn had to be redeemed. And so five temple coins had to be paid to redeem your child back. It was simply a way to acknowledge that we belong to God. It takes, harkens back to the Egypt and coming out of Egypt and the firstborn and the Jewish children were saved. But this was Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn. So they had to take the sacrifice. So Mary and Joseph, they must have saved. They were poor. They had come down from Nazareth. He was a tecton, a craftsman, probably worked in stone, probably was building and working on Sepphoris, Herod has a great uh, amphitheater, still part of it there today. That's probably what Joseph was working on. Well, now he moved down to Bethlehem, didn't even have a job. So they probably saved to have this money to take it in. It's a fair amount, five silver coins in temple uh, coins. He t they're taking that up. Plus, they had to have a sacrifice 
for Mary for purification. Now, it was supposed to be a lamb, pretty expensive. But if you didn't have enough, you could substitute a dove or a pigeon. And so you would bring uh, two doves or two young pigeons. And it says, they came to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. They didn't even include the lamb thing because they were too poor for that. So here we have Mary and Joseph coming to do the, the special day. And they had baby Jesus all wrapped up in his new 40-day uh, 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 nighty. I don't know what he was wearing. Anyways, they had him all decked out in whatever they could afford. They had their coins. They went to the temple and they offered the priest the coins. And then they went into the court of women where they could offer the purification sacrifice for Mary. That's the scene. We're all ready. Here we go. And they're excited. They're ready to do this and find out what's going to happen. Now, there was in Jerusalem, verse 25, a man called Simeon. Simeon was righteous and devout. Real holy guy. We don't know his age. Probably an older man from the context of what's going on here. Could have been younger, but really looks like it was an older man, probably getting way up in years. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, consolation of Israel is a code name. He was waiting for the Messiah, but they use the word consolation of Israel. They had all these code names because you didn't want to say Messiah too much because King Herod didn't like the word Messiah, any other king, any other deliverer. The word consolation is paraklesis, which means comfort. Paraklesis is in Greek, and it means comfort. It's very related to the word parakletos, which means the comforter, one who comes alongside. And often that was used of the Holy Spirit, the parakletos. They were waiting, he was waiting for the consolation, for the paraklesis, the comfort of Israel. It was this thought of someone is coming. In Hebrew, they used the word Meshiach, Messiah. In Greek, the word is Christ. In, he, in English, it is the anointed one. It was the idea that sometime there is going to come Messiah. There is going to come this one who will save us, who will comfort Israel. Israel was overrun by Rome, by Greece, by Persia. Over and over again, they were always subject to someone else. Daniel had prophesied that a Messiah would be coming. Daniel even gave some timelines. And the way they interpret it at this point in time, Josephus tells me, there was, it tells us there was, a, there was kind of a fervor. They were waiting for Messiah. Messiahs had come. Their people said they're Messiah, but the kings, the Romans, had killed most of them. And so to say Messiah was coming, you had to be a little bit careful. So they used other words, consolation of Israel. Simeon was looking forward to the Messiah coming. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He actually had the Holy Spirit who said, God had said to him, man, you will not die until you've seen my Messiah. So I'm sure every day he was in those temple courts checking 
people out wondering, God, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Temple courts are huge. Court of the Gentiles was like four football fields. That is the size. On the one side is the, uh, is the Solomon's Colonnade, which was where the university was, where the rabbis would teach, where professors would be talking and giving lectures. There was the temple where only the high priest would go in. There was the court of Israel where they would offer the sacrifices, the court of women, which is as far as a Jewish woman could go. And then the court of Gentiles where only where uh, Gentiles could go, but that was as far as they could go. In amidst all these people, and many people coming and going and moving around, Simeon comes, and he has a bucket list. Now, you might remember from the movie The Bucket List with Jack Nicholson and uh, Morgan Freeman about what a bucket list is. Well, here's a little clip where uh, Jack Nicholson figures out what's a bucket list. What are you doing? What is this? Come on, give it back. What is it? Give it back. It's on the floor. I didn't know it was a state secret. My freshman philosopher professor assigned this exercise in forward thinking. He called it a bucket list. We were supposed to make a list of all the things we wanted to do in our lives before we kicked the bucket. Cutesy. Anyway, I wrote down things like make a million dollars, first black president, you know, young man's wishes. I was going to redo the list, but then help a complete stranger for the good. Laugh until I cry. Not to be judgmental, but this is extremely weak. It's pointless now. I would argue the exact opposite. All right, that's it. What are you doing? We'll rewrite that song. Movie goes on to... Uh them completing an amazing bucket list of things because one guy's got money and the other guy's got smarts. Simeon had a bucket list, but it only had one thing on it, to see Messiah, to see Messiah. It said in verse 27, he was moved by the Spirit of God. Simeon went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' whole ministry is laid out here as he says, your salvation. I've seen your salvation. The word Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua in the Old Testament, means God is salvation. And I have seen your salvation, he said. It was about being saved from our sin. Eliminating that barrier that exists between God and man. 
and it is sin that separates us from God. And from the moment we're born, we are separated from God, and it's like we're on this highway to hell. Every one of us, all of us. But because of salvation, we can be plucked off of that highway. Salvation is to be saved from that expressway. God's plan of salvation provides a way out through Jesus Christ. And it's not just for a certain group of people, not just for religious people, not just for a certain race or creed, not just for the wealthy, not just for people with status and power, not just for one gender. It was for anyone. Jesus was decidedly Jewish. He was born into a celebrated Jewish family line. He was born into the line of King David. He was born in Bethlehem, the prophetic birthplace of this one, this Messiah. But he was also a man for all the nations. It says the glory of your people Israel, yes. But also he is a light of revelation. He's opening this up to the other nations, to the Gentiles. And it says, Paul states in Galatians 3.38, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Messiah Jesus. Jesus was the one. And Simeon had a bucket list. He wanted to see Messiah. And the Holy Spirit just said to him, You've seen Messiah. And he says, God, I can go in peace now. I can go in peace. But he adds on a little bit. He keeps talking to Mary. It says the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I'm sure we would marvel at someone said like that, something like that to us about our child. But Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. He will be a name. He will be somebody who's going to really rough things up. He will be a sign that will be spoken against. He'll get people angry. People will be speaking against him. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your soul too. Kind of foreshadowing that crucifixion where Mary sees her son crucified, killed. There will be a sad time as well. Now, in the courts, there was also another lady. There was a prophet, Anna. Unusual, it was a woman, but she, notice it was a woman, and she was a prophet. She was the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then was a widow until she was 84, a long time. But she had dedicated herself to God. And she never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Now, that's got to be hyperbole. I don't know. She was up all day and night fasting and praying. Uh, she just starved within seven days. However, we have this idea of this old lady who's just fervently worshipping God and praying and fasting and praying for people and she has it on her heart. She's one, she's a very, very spiritual lady, holy woman. She came up to them. At that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of the Jerusalem. There's another code name 
for Messiah, redemption of Jerusalem. So two people, two of these old people who had been there for a long time and maybe people knew who they were, but they came and they said something very special about this child. And it was something that Mary remembered and uh, was able to tell the writer Luke. Simeon had a bucket list with one thing on it. I want to talk about that one thing this morning as we look into this new year. God's going to do a new thing. It's a new year. He's going to do new things, and there is a new thing. And maybe he's got a new thing for you in your life. I want to talk about the philosophy of the one thing. Simeon, he had one thing. He was just one thing before I die. We want to ask the question, what's your one thing? We're going to use a little video clip, a cowboy philosophy. City Slickers was written, it was a movie a number of years ago. Billy Crystal played a 40-year-old, or almost 40, unhappy Manhattan yuppie. And uh, he's roped into joining two friends on a cattle drive in the southwest at this dude ranch. There he meets a cowboy named Curly. Don't even know his last name. It's just, it was Curly, big old guy. And on the cattle drive, he gets this unexpected introduction to cowboy philosophy, which will prepare him for his life ahead. It's kind of a central point to the whole movie. So we're going to listen to Cowboy Curly giving his philosophy to Mitch. Cowboy leads a different kind of life when there were cowboys. They're a dying breed. Still means something to me, though. A couple of days, they'll move this herd across the river, driving through the valley. Oh, <laughs> there's nothing like bringing in a herd. See, now that's great. Your life makes sense to you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, how old are you? 38. 39. Yeah. You all come up here about the same age, same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope and then... Then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you got to figure out. I had to edit the cowboy words. One thing. What is your one thing this year? Not five things, not six things, not even two things. But what's one thing that God would work with you this year? What's your one thing? I've got some questions, four questions to kind of help you think through. You will not get this bam immediately. Maybe somebody will. You kind of go, I know what my one thing is. For most of us, it will take a few weeks, a little time. The Holy Spirit will speak to you in your life about what's going to be different. And only if you actually ask God, I want this one thing. What is my one thing this year? Let me kind of throw some questions at you to kind of get you thinking that if this was your bucket list of one thing, what's your one thing this year? 
What's your one thing? Now, it could be very much like Simeon, meet Messiah. And in some ways, Christ is going to meet you this year with your one thing. Well, what is that one thing? Question number one that might help you, what is one thing you desire from God? What's one thing you would like from God? If God would say, I'll do one thing that you ask, what would that be? David was a man after God's own heart, and ultimately he desired one thing. He writes in Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. I want to meet with God. And in David's day, that was the temple, and there wasn't a temple. And he, he was keen on building a temple so that there would be a place that people could go and, in a sense, in a physical sense, of have the presence of God. I want to be with God. I want his presence. I want his goodness. I need to know that he's with me always. Now, what's your one thing? Maybe you've got a desire, something. Maybe it's uh, someone you know who isn't a believer, and you like you really would desire God to, to have that person become a believer. Maybe that's your one thing, and, and you will be praying about it, and you'll be working with God to see if there's any way that that person become a believer this year. Maybe you have an addiction or a stronghold in your life that needs to be broken down, and you're going to say, God, this is my one thing. We've got to deal with this. How are we going to do it? And it's going to be a year-long process. Maybe there's a burden that... Uh, you won't want this one thing to be messing up your life. Maybe it's something to do with your marriage. God, it's not where I want it to be. My marriage isn't where I want it to be. I, that's my one thing. Bring healing in my marriage. Maybe you have been promising to slow down, kind of slow down, smell the roses a little bit, and it's been busy, 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 and God, that's my one thing. Help me slow down. Help me connect to you this year. God, I want you to be enough. I want to be satisfied with you this year. Remember Solomon, King Solomon was David's son, and he became king, and God says, what do you want? Solomon says, wisdom. That was his one thing. What's your one thing? What one thing do you need from God, or what one thing that you desire from God? You can flip that around a little bit, this next question. Question number two, what one thing do you lack? Maybe you lack something. Uh, instead of one thing you desire, it's what well, one thing do you lack when it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to your relationship with God? What, what's something that you find missing? In uh, Mark chapter 10, this rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of turns it back to him like Jewish rabbis did and says, well, have you kept all the laws? And he goes, oh yeah, check, 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 yeah, done them all. Jesus looked into his outward appearance, he looked into his heart, and he saw a problem that this guy didn't even know he had. And Jesus said to him something that he didn't say to anybody else, only to this young man. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It was the one thing holding him back. There was one thing he lacked, and he knew it. Maybe you find in your life that you are lacking something, and you would have God do one thing. It is not riches, but what is the one thing that you lack? Maybe you might say, you know, 
used to read through the Bible uh, five days a week, but really felt close to God, but, you know, kind of got busy, got things happening, it, it fell away, and I haven't been doing that, and I kind of, I lack that. Maybe you would say I lack uh, Christian fellowship. Uh, you know, I haven't been part of a, a, a Bible study group or anything, and, you know, I know their church is having them, but I haven't been doing that. I, I need that. I lack that accountability where you're coming together with a group. Maybe that's what you lack. Maybe you're wrestling with the whole tithe. You know, yeah, I give to God a little bit, but this whole idea of 10%, I'm like, ah, yeah, I don't really do that. And maybe, maybe that's a lack in your life, and you really haven't seen God blessing. Perhaps it's the one thing. Maybe you need someone to hold you accountable. It's so easy to drift into sin and mess you up, and, and you need somebody to keep you accountable, and, and there's a lack in your life of that, that accountability frame. Maybe you've been isolating, just not connecting with people and don't have any close friends. and it, you, you, it lacks, and it affects your relationship with God as well. What one thing do you lack? What one thing would you need in your life to move forward with God? So what do you desire from God, or what do you lack and need? Uh, third question, kind of trigger it up a little bit. Why don't you say, what, what one thing do I need to let go of? It's another way to look at it. Sometimes we get a lot of stuff in our life, and sometimes we've got to let go of things. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament has a very powerful chapter in Philippians 3. He wanted to know Jesus. He really wanted to know him, not just knowing about him, but to know him. And a lot of stuff had happened in Paul's life. And he says, brothers, sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I haven't got there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what's behind, reaching for what's ahead. Here was Paul. You know, he was the guy who was there when they executed Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He was the guy who was persecuting the church. And I'm sure there's all kinds of stories and thoughts in his head of all that stuff I wish I hadn't done. There was all the stories of the pain that he endured uh, as he became a believer, as he followed Jesus, as he began telling others and he had been whipped five times. He had been beaten three times with rods. He'd been shipwrecked three times. He had been stoned and left for dead. All of this stuff was in his life. But he says, I forget what's behind. Put it all back and look forward. That's one thing that I do. Maybe that's your one thing to let go. At Camp Qantas, we have a uh, challenge course. In the challenge course is the sky station. And it's three levels. goes up like 30, 40 feet. And the kids buckle in, and then they, they get up. And there's just wires. There's just a wire that they have to walk on. Not there's safety things on. But, you know, you can see the kids, and they're holding on to the post. And they're supposed to walk on the wire. they got to let go. You can't walk on the wire and... Hold on. you got to let go and walk. It's forgetting what's behind, letting go. What's the thing you got to let go of? Now, for some of us, we've been hurt. Most likely, everybody has been hurt sometime in their life, probably in your, when you were little. And that story, if, you, if I were to ask and say, 
How many of you have been hurt as a little kid? Tell me the story. You'd probably come up easily with the story because it hurt. You remember it. Now, sometimes we have let go of it, but for many of us, we never let go. That's always there. So the next time you see a little red-headed kid, just like that little red-headed kid that hurt you, you don't like him. You never let go of that. Unforgiveness, bitterness. God might be saying, I want to do something new in your life, but you know, you've got to let go of that. You've got to let go of that, forgetting what is behind and pressing on. Some of the biggest problems I've found in marriage today is that people don't let go of the past. They're in counseling, they're talking, and you're doing stories, and then they tell you this story. Well, he did this. When? 20 years ago. I think you need to let go. Sometimes we failed at something, and it's, it's holding us down because we say, well, I can never do that, or I'm never going to do that again. I failed that once. I'm never going to do it. Sometimes it's let go, let go. Some of us might have let ourselves down, and we're, we're discouraged, we're, we're frustrated at ourselves, and we've got to let it go. Let it go and see where God wants us to go. You let go of the pain of the past, and you press on. What do you need to let go of? Fourth question, what do you desire? What do you lack? What do you need to let go of? Fourth question, what one promise do you need to claim? There's a lot of promises in Scripture. Maybe one of those is your one thing, to hold this promise this year. What one promise do you need to claim? When King David was a young man, he was anointed by Samuel to be the next king. Samuel looked at all of Jesse's sons. They were all handsome, but uh, kept, the Holy Spirit kept saying, not that one, not that one, not that one. Do you have any others, he said to Jesse. And he says, well, there's the runt out taking care of the sheep. I don't think that would be him. Well, well, bring in the little runt. They brought in David, and God says, I don't look at what people look at. I look at the heart. This is the next king. And there was a promise that God gave. This little kid, this young teenager, is going to be king. But it never happened right away. It took time. Saul was the king at the time, and he heard about this, and he, he had it out to kill David. And he tried, and he tried, and he tried. Uh, David was running from Saul for years. He even had to hide amongst their enemies, which was actually a stupid idea, but uh, that's, that's kind of, he was, he was desperate. And he had so many things that didn't go right, so many things that were messing up, so many things there, but David said this. This one thing I know, God is for me. There is a promise. God is for me. I am trusting God, oh, praise his promises. I'm not afraid of anything mere man can do to me. Yes, praise his promises. And even when he had an opportunity to kill King Saul, he never did it because he said, I know God's promises. God promised I would be king, but I will leave that with him. One thing I know. God is for me. That is trusting in a promise. And maybe God is going to give you a promise, and that will be your one thing this year. Here's a list of some promises. These are just some promises that are in Scripture. He promises to meet every need you have from His riches. He promises you won't be tempted beyond what you can handle. He promises to forgive all your sin, to make everything work out for your good. Well, promise is that he'd never leave you or forsake you. 
God promises to be your ever-present help in trouble, to give strength to the weary and power to the weak. God promises to guide you and give you direction. Jesus promises to give you a peace that goes beyond your understanding. The Holy Spirit promises to give you power to defeat Satan. Scripture promises again and again that nothing will be able to separate you from God's love. And as that song sang this morning, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. That's a promise. And we have a promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. These are promises. What one promise do you need to claim this year? Well, here are some of the questions. What one thing do you desire from God above all else? What one thing do you lack? What one thing do you need to let go of? What one promise do you need to claim? Some ideas. What is my one thing? In your bucket list of one year, what is one thing that God has for you? To do a new thing. Talk it over. Open up with, uh, with a friend. Kind of hassle it back and forth. I, it won't be simple. It won't be easy. It'll take time. As I was preparing this message about two weeks ago, I started, and I was looking at it, and going, God, you better provide me with one thing or I won't be able to preach this thing. And I, I kind of even thought I was going to come and say, you know, I'm still working on it. But last night, uh, I was at a uh, staff retreat up in Bayside in uh, Parksville. Jason Ballard from Vancouver was there. He had spoke to us three times. In his last message, I kind of go, that's my one thing. Jason mentioned that uh, he had been speaking. He's a, he's a young man, but uh, he speaks all over the world. He's part of uh, Christian Life Assembly in Vancouver as the, you want to, as the lead youth pastor, and they have about six pastors. Um, but he is also the, uh, uh, he put together the Youth Alpha course, and he speaks on that all over the world. And he said he had been speaking everywhere, doing all kinds of stuff at Christmas time, and two days after Christmas, nothing, nothing going on. And he, he was by himself, his wife and little kids were sleeping, and he was all by himself, and he was feeling lonely, and he Went to the fridge, tried to find something to eat. He went to the TV, tried to find something. And, and then he realized his soul was hungry. And so he came up with this word. He's going, is that you, soul? And I'm going, that's my one thing. This year when I get that weirdness in life, and you're kind of, I'm hungry, and you go get a bag of chips, and you go, I don't want a bag of chips. And so you turn the TV on, you go through all 99 channels, and you still can't find anything to watch. And that you, soul? That you, soul? Our soul hungers for God. And if we are struggling in our relationship with God, if we are, if we are empty, it is our soul crying out, and it's our soul hungry. And so a little bit of soul care this year. And it's not something that's gonna, I'm going to be able to fix in, in one night reading one book. It's something that's going to be the year-long thing. This is my one thing. That you, soul? That's my one thing. What's your one thing this year? Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you, God, for people who are not satisfied for what was but are hungry for what could be. I pray, Holy Spirit, that one or two of these questions would just haunt us. Help us to narrow down to one specific thing that will be different in our lives this year. Father, we ask that you would give us not a good idea, but a God 
idea, that you would help us to seek not just change, but to seek the God of change. Give us power when we're weak, and we would ask that you would change one thing for your glory this year in my life, in each of our lives, and that when we see that change, that we will give you the glory for it, that it won't be something we've done, it's something the Holy Spirit has done within us. God, I thank you that this is a new day, a new year, and you're a God of new beginnings. And you're a God who speaks to your children, and you're speaking to so many of us today. And perhaps there's someone here who doesn't even have a relationship with you, and God, maybe that is their one thing this year, and that their one prayer is, God, show yourself to me this year. Lord, we pray. As we come into this new year and the end of this service, but into the beginning of a new year, Lord, help us to find that one thing that you're going to make a significant difference in our lives and in what we can make a significant difference in the life of the world. Bless us, we pray. We thank you in the name of Jesus, the one who loved us and died for us. We pray. Amen.